This audio file is a production of the University of Chicago Law School. Visit us on the web at www.law.uchicago.edu. Somebody came, I think he's jobless now, so it doesn't matter, um, the President of the United States. Uh, and we're here um, for a really interesting debate. Um, does the 14th Amendment protect unenumerated rights? Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm excited to introduce to you all um, Professor Kurt Lash and Mr. Alan Gora. Uh, Professor Lash graduated from Yale Law School and served as a law clerk to Robert R. Reeser of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit. After clerking, he joined the University of Illinois from Loyola, Loyola Law School of Angeles, where he served as the James P. Bradley Chair of Constitutional Law. His recent book, American Privileges and Immunities, Federalism, the 14th Amendment, and the Rights of American Citizenship, was published in 2014. Is that right? And Mr. Alan Gura founded Gura and Pisesky, PLLC, and his practice focuses primarily on con law. He began his career by serving as a law clerk to the Honorable Terrence W. Boyle, U.S. District Judge for the Eastern District of North Carolina. Subsequently, he served as a Deputy Attorney General for the State of California, where he defended the state and its employees from lawsuits in both state and federal court. Afterwards, Mr. Durant entered private practice, working in the city of Austin, D.C., and in February 2011, he left the firm to serve as, uh, for a year as counsel to the U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee, Subcommittee on Criminal Justice and Oversight. So please help me in welcoming Professor Lash and Mr. Gar. Oh, this is going to be fun. I like, I like the hum. <laughs> I kind of felt like if I get up here, but I, if I go, Thank you. Uh, thank you, George, for having me. Uh, thanks to Alan. Uh, thanks to Alan for, uh, for joining me up here so we can continue our ongoing conversation about unenumerated rights um, and the Constitution, <clears throat> today focusing on the 14th Amendment. Pleasure to be here. Pleasure to have a chance to talk about um, anything other than Donald Trump. This would be great. We could actually focus on something else for a second here. Um, it is an ongoing conversa conversation. We haven't convinced each other yet, but you know, who knows? Today, today could be the day. Um, but we're continuing to explore and continuing to, um, um, to invite others to explore the history of the Constitution. And it's a, it's a topic that I think is very much in play uh, with the new, uh, the new possibilities on the Supreme Court. So, um, so I'm glad to be here and, and be a part of what could be a, a historic addition. Um, I have to keep my comments uh, to 10 minutes, so I just want to dive right in and give you my bottom line, and then I'll, I'll talk about how I support that particular position. Um, I believe the 14th Amendment binds the states to respect enumerated constitutional rights. Um, that includes rights enumerated in the Bill of Rights and incorporated against the states by way of the Privileges or Immunities Clause, but it also includes other enumerated rights like habeas corpus or uh, the Comedy Clause of Article 4. All unenumerated rights, however, are left to the political troll, uh, control of the people in the states, subject only to the requirements of due process and equal protection. So I limit the privileges or immunities clause to just constitutionally enumerated rights um, applicable against the states. Um, now, I'll talk about how I arrive at that position here in a moment, but I want to begin by kind of pointing out the nature, the precise nature of this debate. No one actually believes um, in judicially enforceable unenumerated rights. Okay, not, not really. Uh, the claim always, even the, even the strongest advocate of unenumerated constitutional rights um, grounds their claim in some text in the Constitution, some enumerated rights provision in the Constitution. Uh, for example, the Ninth Amendment, or maybe it's the Due Process Clause, or maybe it's the Privileges or Immunities Clause, um, and then building upon that enumerated right, arguing in favor of a more expansive reading of that right to include uh, maybe natural rights or maybe uh, common law rights of some, some form or another. So the argument isn't really about whether or not there are unenumerated rights. No one really believes that that's part of the practice of American law. Instead, what we're talking about 
um, involves an issue of interpretation. How ought we interpret those specific enumerated provisions which actually are in uh, the Constitution? And answering that question is going to uh, require a theory of interpretation. I don't think we're going to come to any fundamental or absolute conclusion regarding um, the proper uh, theory of constitutional interpretation, but I think that both Alan and I agree, at least on this, that historical context or the original understanding or the historical understanding of constitutional clauses is at least relevant um, to understanding how they ought to be applied in contemporary, uh, contemporary jurisprudence. So what I want to do is I want to focus my comments today on the history of the Constitution and historical understandings of um, a potential text in the Constitution that might be read to embrace unenumerated, unenumerated rights. Now, I know that we're focusing today on the, four, the 14th Amendment. Yes, it's in there. Um, but I also know that at some point uh, today, it's inevitable that the Ninth Amendment will come up. So I just want to say a couple of very brief words about the Ninth Amendment. Some, uh, some justices and also some theorists have read the Ninth Amendment to the Constitution as somehow justifying judicial recognition and enforcement of unenumerated rights. Um, I, uh, the historical evidence is against that. Uh, there isn't a single court or constitutional commentator that read the Ninth Amendment from the time of its adoption going forward as a, uh, as a source of unenumerated individual rights uh, for about the first 150 years of the Constitution. Uh, beginning with James Madison, uh, the man responsible for drafting the clause, um, in his comments immediately after ratification when he was engaged in the debate over the Bank of the United States, um, he read the Ninth Amendment as working alongside the Tenth in reserving to the people of the states the right uh, to local self-government. Basically, um, the Ninth and Tenth Amendments were federalism provisions uh, that were understood as limiting the power of the, of the national government and maximizing the political power of the people um, in the several states. Um, and so that reading dominates uh, for the first 150 years of the Constitution, and nobody says, uh, nobody says to the contrary. Um, d for example, during the antebellum period, even though abolitionists were citing any source of law they possibly could in favor of freedom, um, or the freedom of the slaves, they never once raised the Ninth Amendment as a possible source of, uh, of natural rights. On the other hand, the seceding states cited the Ninth Amendment in support of the state's rights to exit the Union if they thought that the federal compact had been, had been violated. So from the time of the founding all the way to the Civil War, the Ninth Amendment remains linked to the Tenth as representing federalism uh, and limited federal power. So that um, wouldn't historically be understood as a fount of unenumerated rights until the Civil War. Then maybe things change, right? Uh, we have a new, a restructuring of federalism. Obviously, you're going to get new provisions into the Constitution that are binding the states. So maybe now we have a clause uh, that changes the original protection of state autonomy. Um, the first potential source uh, for opening up the states to being liable uh, to claims of unenumerated rights would be the due process clause. You know that the jurisprudence of the Supreme Court embraces the doctrine of substantive due process and has um, expanded that doctrine to embrace a number of unenumerated rights. I won't say a great deal about that. I think most scholars are skeptical of that reading of the Due Process Clause. Um, I don't think even the Supreme Court is convinced by that particular reading. I think um, just from the, from the comments in oral argument in the, in the Second Amendment cases, I think the court sticks by substantive due process as a matter of stare decisis more than any kind of um, argument based upon the historical understanding um, of the 14th Amendment. Um, it was understood throughout and certainly by the majority of the members of Congress and the majority of the public at the time of, um, of the Civil War as being a procedural clause and not embracing substantive due process, an idea that develops right in the late, late 1800s and then into the, into the 20th century. Um, so Instead, but that doesn't mean that scholars and commentators have given up on the idea of unenumerated rights. It just means for the past couple of decades, the attention has moved away from the due process clause as justifying substantive due process um, and moved instead towards the privileges or immunities clause. Maybe the court's jurisprudence in enforcing both enumerated and unenumerated rights against the states shouldn't be grounded in the due process clause, but actually should be grounded in this initial provision or in the second sentence of Section 1, 
uh, whereby states are bound to respect the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States. And so that's where I want to focus the remainder of my comments. I would, uh, my position would be that history just uh, doesn't support a Ninth Amendment reading or a due process reading of substantive um, unenumerated rights, but what about the privileges or immunities clause? Now again, as Jordan pointed out a couple of, uh, uh, a couple of minutes ago, I recently uh, published a book with Cambridge Press um, exploring the history of the Privileges or Immunities Clause, and I think that the evidence uh, very strongly suggests that it referred to the rights of citizens that were actually listed in the citizens' document, in the citizens' constitution, um, and did not refer to unenumerated rights. So in my final minutes, how am I doing? I should be, I should be going here. Uh, the final minute, just throw a red card at me. Um, I'll just briefly trace what I think the historical arguments are regarding the privileges or immunities clause, and I'll uh, turn the podium over to Alan. Um, if you wanted to, you could Google um, of the 14th Amendment in Section 1, and just to look at the language, I'm going to talk a little bit about it. Um, no state shall make or enforce any law abridging the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States. Um, we know that the, uh, the man who wrote that clause, who wrote Section 1 of the 14th Amendment, John Bingham, uh, representative from Ohio, um, intended to draft a provision that forced the states to respect rights enumerated in the Bill of Rights, especially the first eight amendments. He said this over and over again, so much so that I don't think there's, any, there's really any dispute that that was his major goal. He, he declared it to be um, his major goal. Um, he believed that all constitutionally enumerated rights uh, counted as privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, and that states should be bound to respect those rights, and that had not been the case, of course, for the, um, uh, the first decades of the Constitution. The Bill of Rights only bound the federal government, didn't bind the states. He believed that, that should change. Um, he focused on the first eight amendments, but in his arguments, he said those were, uh, those were the main representatives of the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States. There were others. Uh, there are other enumerated rights, like the rights to habeas corpus, which he talked about. Um, he talked about, uh, uh, he and others talked about the comedy clause and the rights of Article 4, privileges and immunities. Various rights that were actually enumerated in the text of the Constitution, which now, as of right, ought to be applied against the states. Okay. So that was his vision um, for, the, um, uh, for the privileges or immunities clause. He ultimately chooses to use language for it that has roots going all the way back to the Louisiana Session Act of 1803, an act that spoke of the privileges and immunities of citizens of the United States. Uh, Bingham's hero, Daniel Webster, described those rights as referring to only constitutionally enumerated rights and not as referring to unenumerated rights like the right to own a slave. Webster was very much opposed to that kind of reading of privileges, uh, privileges or immunities. Now again, so, so Bingham presents this idea, and I think that there's substantial evidence supporting um, uh, the public also reading privileges or immunities as including these uh, particularly important listed rights, freedom of assembly, freedom of petition, freedom of speech, all of which had been seriously abused and bridged uh, by the slave states um, uh, during the, uh, the period of antebellum. Um, but also, privileges and immunities did include the comedy clause of Article 4, and that clause is often raised as a potential source of unenumerated rights as well, so I just want to spend a second on that. Um, Article 4 talks about the privileges and immunities of the citizens of the several states. Um, the clause during the antebellum period was not understood as a source of substantive privileges and immunities. Instead, it was read as a kind of equal protection clause. You may have already studied it if you studied Corfield against Coriel, maybe for like 10 seconds in, in constitutional law. A circuit decision uh, uh, drafted by Justice Bushrod in Washington while he's writing on circuit. Um, the privileges and immunities of citizens in the several states that had to be respected by states simply meant that when a visitor came from another state, you had to give them a degree of respect. You had to allow them access to a, a limited set of rights that you were granting your own citizens. Um, so if you were letting your own citizens uh, pursue the right um, um, to trade in selling shoes, then you had to allow visitors when they came from other states the right to pursue a trade in selling shoes. But it wasn't an absolute economic right. You could deny everybody the right to sell shoes. 
if you wanted to. It's just that if you were allowing that right to your own citizens and you had to give equal access to it uh, to visitors from out of state. So it was a, kind of an equal treatment clause. And this is how Bushrod Washington <coughs> interpreted it in, um, in Corfield. That's how uh, Joseph Story interprets it in his commentaries. That's how Chancellor Kant <coughs> interprets it in his commentaries. It's really a, a very solid body of case law that treats Article 4 as a kind of equal treatment clause. So yes, it becomes bundled up and it becomes one of the enumerated rights of um, citizens of the United States that's protected under the 14th Amendment, but what's protected is the right to equal treatment. Um, it doesn't uh, somehow transform these equal protection rights into substantive, uh, substantive rights. So you have this bundle of enumerated privileges and immunities, but that isn't all Bingham wanted to do. He also finished out Section 1 uh, with a protection of what he believed were natural rights. He believed that all persons, not just citizens, the language changes in this part of Section 1. He, along with most other Republicans, actually I think all Republicans during this period of time, uh, believed that all persons uh, were due of uh, the rights of due process, that no person, even if they weren't a citizen yet, no person should be denied life, liberty, or property without due process of law, and all persons should receive the equal protection of the law. And he believed the black codes, of course, were violating that, um, that protection of life, liberty, and property, and that equal protection of the law. Um, and so along with the other Republicans, he wanted to add provisions that provided everybody, all persons, those particular um, natural, natural rights. Um, so he ends up with a section one that gives you a certain collection of citizenship rights, those that are listed in the Constitution, and a certain set of natural rights, uh, the procedural rights of due process, um, and equal protection, and that's all he does. Um, there's no effort, and there's certainly no um, a desire among moderate and conservative Republicans um, to give the federal government power over the entire unenumerated subject of civil rights in the states. They continue to believe in federalism, they believe that federalism was an important guarantor of liberty. It was federalism um, that the northern states were using to free slaves that escaped from the south and made their way north. This idea that there um, should be these uh, local communities of broader visions of liberty was something that continued to be important to, uh, uh, to the framers of the 14th Amendment. And so instead, they simply wanted a, the, the moderates wanted a moderate clause and a moderate expansion of liberty. And I'll close on this, because I know I'm, I'm, I'm out of time now. Um, this wasn't just an intention by John Bingham. It wasn't just an idea or an intention expressed in Congress. I think you can also find evidence that the public understood the clause in this particular way. And I'll end my comments with a quote from the very first case to interpret the privileges or immunities clause that I've managed, uh, that I've managed to find. Um, it's an 1871 case, you're about three years out, right? 1871 case uh, from the state of Ohio, Garns against McCann, um, and Supreme Court Judge John Day described the Privileges or Immunities Clause um, the following way. Quote, this case involves the equity as to what privileges or immunities are embraced in the inhibition of this clause. Privileges or Immunities Clause. We're not aware that this has as yet been judicially settled. The language of the clause, however, taken in connection with other provisions of the amendment and of the Constitution of which it forms a part, affords strong reasons for believing that it includes only such privileges or immunities as are derived from or recognized by the Constitution of the United States. A broader interpretation opens into a field of conjecture limitless as the range of speculative theories and might work such limitations of the power of the states to manage and regulate their local institutions and affairs as were never contemplated by the amendment. It just refers to privileges and immunities listed in the Constitution itself. Um, so the clause is not an invitation to limitless conjecture. Um, it's a conclusion that if a right is important enough to be listed in the Constitution, it's important enough uh, to be applied against the states. All other unenumerated rights are left to the people in the states to decide for themselves as a matter of their political retained rights. That also is a right um, left undisturbed and preserved by the 14th Amendment. Enough. Alan, take the Sure, we'll close my notes.
Alright. Well, thank you so much for uh, coming here. I, I kind of like this formulation that Professor Lash started with that um, even the unenumerated rights that, that I and some of my colleagues would argue for are in a sense enumerated because we are basing our arguments upon the text of the Constitution. That is, nobody makes the argument that judges have the authority to simply conjure rights because um, that's what comes with the robe or the gavel, rather that uh, the arguments are grounded in text. Uh, and my arguments here today are certainly grounded in a constitutional text. And I'd be happy to explore what I think that text means and uh, what I think its, its promises and limitations might be. I'd like to start, though, by making another observation, which I think oftentimes eludes uh, a lot of parties to debate, and that is that as far as the Supreme Court's current position on privileges or immunities, if we look to the Slaughterhouse cases, which is unfortunately still uh, in effect today, there was unanimity. It's a 5-4 case, to be sure. The, the court was deeply divided. But there was unanimity, at least on, on one item, which is all nine justices agreed that in some measure, the Privileges or Immunities Clause guaranteed unenumerated rights. The uh, majority uh, opinion uh, had sort of a nonsense list of these rights, rights that arise from the formation of the national government and uh, that owe their existence to the, the formation of that government. So you have the right to the Navy's protection on the high seas. You have the right to take a tour of the Bureau of Engraving and Printing, I guess, on 14th Street, right, to visit the sub-treasuries in Washington very odd uh, conception of what we fought the Civil War over. But nonetheless, those rights, uh, whether you believe them uh, to exist, the right to use the navigable waterways of the United States, those are unenumerated to be sure they're not listed anywhere in the Bill of Rights or anywhere else. And of course, the dissenters uh, believed that the uh, plaintiffs in that case had asserted a livelihood right of sorts against the monopoly that Louisiana would impose against them. So you had nine justices disagreeing, but we knew, at least they knew, or understood that, that there are some unenumerated rights that are there. Um, so uh, let's see what, uh, which side, if any, was, was correct, and whether or not unenumerated rights really are or are not within this text guaranteeing privileges uh, or immunities of citizenship. Now, the important thing uh, to start with is to understand the language. Uh, privileges and immunities were synonymous with rights. That was the case in uh, dictionaries, it was the case in common usage. Um, uh, here's what Justice Thomas said in his uh, McDonald opinion. The two words, standing alone or paired together, were, were used interchangeably with the words rights, liberties, and freedoms, and had been since the time of Blackstone. And Justice Thomas uh, has no shortage of citations. He could have gone longer. Um, he goes on to tell us that the fact that a particular interest was designated as a privilege or immunity rather than a right, liberty, or freedom revealed little about its substance. Blackstone, for example, used the term privileges and immunities to describe both the inalienable rights of individuals and the positive law rights of corporations. And then citing Lash, the origins of the Privilege Immunities Clause, a nice article in the Georgetown Law Journal, uh, Justice Thomas told us that the nature of a privilege or immunity thus varied depending on the person, group, or entity to whom those rights were assigned. Um, and I would agree with that. And, and uh, he cites a wonderful article that Professor Lash left us with. So which rights were the rights guaranteed in the 14th Amendment? We know the term means rights. Uh, is it uh, uh, rights in general? Is it the specific rights that have been otherwise set forth in the, in the Constitution? Uh, let's see. Well, those words do appear elsewhere in the Constitution. Of course, Article 4, Section 2 has what Professor Lash referred to and everybody refers to today as the Comedy Clause. Comedy, C-O-M-I-T-Y, not comedy. Um, uh, not, uh, not a source of great fun, uh, although it is still litigated and actually is once in a while applied in cases that real people bring today. Uh, and uh, there, that provision, Article 4, Section 2, tells us the states have to uh, respect the privileges and immunities of citizens in the several states. And um, the Supreme Court did get, or not the Supreme Court, uh, at least one Supreme Court justice, did get an early chance to define that language, and of course that was Justice Bushrod Washington, who I believe was George's nephew, in Corfield versus Coriel, uh, writing circuit in, in Pennsylvania, and he told, the, he told us the following, and I think this is very important language, so forgive me, I'm going to have to read at you for at least a few seconds. We feel no hesitation in confining these expressions to those privileges and immunities which are in their nature fundamental, <coughs> which belong of right to the citizens of all free governments, and which have at all times been enjoyed by the citizens 
of the several states which compose the Union. What these fundamental principles are it would perhaps be more tedious and difficult to enumerate. They may, however, be all comprehended under the following general heads. Protection by the government, the enjoyment of life and liberty with the right to, to uh, acquire and possess property of every kind, and to pursue and obtain happiness and safety, subject nevertheless to essentially regulation in the interest of, of the, the public good. And then um, realizing this is quite an expansive description, Justice Washington then gives us some examples nonetheless. The right of a citizen of one state to pass through or to reside in any other state for purposes of trade, agriculture, professional pursuits, or otherwise. To claim the, writ of, uh, the, the benefit of the writ of habeas corpus. To institute and maintain actions of any kind in the courts of the state. To take hold and dispose of property, either real or personal, and an exemption from higher taxes and impositions that are paid by the other uh, citizens of the state. And he also throws in the elective franchise uh, for good measure. Now, um, it's true that if you read uh, this provision um, uh, straight, as Justice uh, Washington did and as people do today, it, it doesn't apparently require the states to extend any particular rights. But to the extent that states extend the rights of citizens in a free government, um, uh, they have to extend them to all comers. Now, this the South plainly did not do in the period before the Civil War. There's no dispute about that. I need hardly recount the history. But uh, there were constantly problems uh, both with uh, freedmen, uh, free blacks coming to the South for some purpose, finding themselves subjected to all kinds of uh, deprivations, as well as, of course, uh, uh, various problems that uh, white Northerners had in advocating against the slave power when they were there. In any event, more to the point, and this is very important for our discussion, as, as far as abolitionist legal thought was concerned in the 19th century, um, uh, it was standard fare that Article 4, Section 2 did impose positive legal obligations on the states, which, in their view, the states were not following. Uh, now, interestingly, uh, and I, I don't have the time to, to review Joel <laughs> Tiffany and, and, and uh, uh, various other uh, scholars on this point, but what's interesting, though, is at least on this point, uh, slavery advocates agreed with the abolitionists. That is, they agreed about more or less the definition of privileges uh, and immunities. Here is what the Supreme Court said in Dred Scott, a case of some notoriety then as today. Uh, arguing against the concept that African Americans could be citizens, the Supreme Court majority wrote that if African Americans were so received, that is, as citizens, and entitled to the privileges and immunities of citizens, it would exempt them from the operation of the special laws and from the police regulations related to, uh, to uh, uh, black people. It would give to persons of the Negro race who are recognized as citizens in any one state of the Union the right to enter every other state whenever they pleased, singly or in companies, without pass or passport and without obstruction, to sojourn there as long as they pleased, to go where they pleased at every hour of the day or night without molestation unless they committed some violation of law for which a white man would be punished, and it would give them the full liberty of speech in public and in private upon all subjects upon which its own citizen might speak, to hold public meetings upon political affairs, and to keep and carry arms wherever they went. Interesting list of privileges and immunities. Now notice what that list contains. It contains some things that we recognize from the First and Second Amendments, right? Uh, public affairs, meetings, speaking, uh, carrying guns. It also includes some things that we might recognize as rights, but which are definitely not enumerated in the Bill of Rights. Sojourn, interstate travel, um, uh, and so on. So, you know, obviously, right to travel, not enumerated. Uh, right to speak and hold public meetings, enumerated. Altogether, uh, in at least some consensus, that, um, that this is what privileges and immunities means uh, in 1857. And abolitionists engaged with the Dred Scott opinion. They debated it. Um, and in fact, uh, while they didn't find much to like about the, uh, the opinion, there was um, uh, some uh, feedback from the anti-slavery uh, uh, advocates who said, well, at least this enumeration of privileges and immunities, at least they got that right. And by the way, this is exactly what we're, uh, we're, we're uh, complaining about. There, uh, there was an interesting uh, speech given by uh, Massachusetts State Representative Wells, reprinted in The Liberator, uh, you can go read it yourself, but basically it recites the Dred Scott language of privileges and immunities back as a positive example of what it is that people are unjustly deprived of uh, owing to slavery. 
In any event, the Civil War is fought. You know the outcome there. The South loses, and it's time to draft some constitutional amendments to resolve the problems of Dred Scott. The 13th Amendment ends slavery, but that doesn't really uh, do enough because uh, we still have the problem then of how are the former slaves to be treated in the South and are they, uh, in fact, citizens? Are they citizens of their states? Are they citizens of the United States? Uh, and if so, what does that mean? And that's why you have uh, not just the citizenship clauses, but also the, um, the, uh, the, uh, uh, the privileges or immunities clauses, the due process clause, and of course, the uh, equal protection clause to follow that that tells the states what they can and cannot do with people and with citizens. Now, what's interesting here, uh, if we look at the text of the Privileges or Muse Clause, as Professor Lash noted, uh, it does bear some resemblance to, um, to the Article 4, Section 2 right. And in fact, here's what Justice Thomas had to say. I don't think this is too radical an observation. The text of this provision resembles the Privileges or Muse Clause, resurfacing Article 4, Section 2, and it can be assumed that the public's understanding of the latter was informed by its understanding of the former. Uh, and I submit to you that the dictionary definitions then at the time, the public's processing and engagement with Dred Scott and indeed with Corfield versus Coriel were absorbed and this is what the language meant in the uh, common usage. Uh, but there's also something else going on here and that is we have to remember what the intent of the 14th Amendment was. What were the problems that were supposed to be addressed by the 14th Amendment? Well, Congress had passed in 1866 the Civil Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act uh, was enacted uh, to deal with the way in which the freedmen were being treated in the South. They were not allowed to uh, freely uh, offer and accept their services uh, for labor. They were oftentimes tied down to the same old plantations and all kinds of uh, oppressive um, uh, labor contracts. It was basically the economic institution of slavery that was slowly being reimposed, even if the formality of one person owning another was dispensed with. And so the Civil Rights Act of 1866 tells us, or told uh, the, the states at least, that they were no longer to, um, to violate the rights of citizens of the United States in this manner. Uh, people had the right to make and enforce contracts, to sue, be parties, and give evidence. This starts to sound like, like, like Corfield, right? Um, to inherit, purchase, lease, sell, hold, and convey real and personal property, and to full and equal benefit of all laws and proceedings for the security of person and property as is enjoyed by white citizens. Notice equal protection is there, to be sure, but that's also in addition to these positive rights to uh, make and enforce contracts, to access the courts, to participate in civil society. This was the problem of the aftermath of the Civil War. Of course, without um, uh, a constitutional hook for the Civil Rights Act of 1866, it proved to be uh, not very uh, effective, and the purpose of the 14th Amendment was to constitutionalize the Civil Rights Act of 1866. Of this, there's no a shortage, and both sides understood this, no shortage of evidence. Uh, Representative uh, Rogers, um, an antagonist to the radical Republicans in the uh, 39th Congress, uh, declared Section 1 of the 14th Amendment no more nor less an attempt to embody in the Constitution that outrageous and miserable Civil Rights Bill. Well, okay. And that brings us to the debates on the 14th Amendment itself. Now, it's important here, when we look at legislative statements, I am not making an argument for legislative intent. I am not a big believer in legislative intent. But sometimes, the statements of the legislators is at least evidence of the way in which people spoke at the time. And it might reflect its, its relevant evidence as to the meaning of the terms that were used by the people at the time. And that tells us uh, how the text should be understood. I think Justice Thomas captured this again. For some reason, I keep referring to his opinion, but I think it's a, it's a well-written one. Uh, he tells us that, that when interpreting constitutional text, the goal is to discern the most likely public understandings uh, of a particular provision at the time it was adopted. Statements by legislatures can assist in this process to the extent they demonstrate the manner in which the public used or understood a particular word or phrase. Now, we go then to the actual language itself. The author of the privileges or immunities provision, John Bingham, did make it plain that he was intending to protect the Bill of Rights. I don't think there's any dispute on that, and uh, his words are there, uh, and they are there for all to see. Um, and at one point, in a point that's uh, in a speech that's uh, quoted very often at uh, times by Professor Lash and others, 
Uh, Bingham states that uh, the security of the Bill of Rights is the intent uh, uh, of the, of the uh, privileges or immunities language. It hath that extent no more, quoting Shakespeare in various places. But let's not take that remark out of context, because Bingham then explains that the amendment would also enforce the privileges and immunities uh, secured by Article 4. In fact, Bingham had made clear, in his view, Bill of Rights, which to you might mean the first 10 amendments to the Constitution, also includes Article 4. And here are some uh, interesting sources. These are sources Professor Lash has found and published before. He described, Bingham described Article 4 and the Fifth Amendment as <laughs> these great provisions of the Constitution, this immortal Bill of Rights embodied in the Constitution. Fifth Amendment, we recognize today as a Bill of Rights. Article 4, I'm not sure any of us would refer to it as that. But that was at least Bingham's understanding. And so if he says this protects the Bill of Rights, he's including Article 4 in there too. And remember, he's also coming out of the abolitionist legal tradition that thinks Article 4 has, has an actual direct imposition uh, 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 force against the states when it comes to <coughs> certain specific rights. And in fact, um, on the Senate side, we have another speech which uh, also garnered um, a, uh, a great deal of, of, uh, of discussion at the time. Um, Senator Jacob Howard, uh, the floor leader for Michigan who introduced uh, the 14th Amendment, gave a speech where he recited Corfield's definition of privileges and immunities, and then he continued, to these privileges and immunities, whatever they may be, for they are not and cannot be fully defined in their entire extent and precise nature, to these should be added the personal rights guaranteed and secured by the first eight amendments of the Constitution, such as the freedom of speech and the right to keep and bear arms and so on. Here is a mass of privileges, he tells us. Here is a mass of privileges, immunities, and rights. Some of them secured by the second section of the fourth article of the Constitution, which I recited, some by the first eight amendments of the Constitution. That's the person introducing the 14th Amendment and the Senate side. And that's how he's reading privileges or immunities. Now, interestingly, the opponents uh, of the 14th Amendment shared the same view. This was not disputed. Uh, here's what Representative Rogers said. What are privileges and immunities? Why, sir, all the rights we have under the laws of the country are embraced under the definition of privileges and immunities. The right to vote is a privilege. The right to marry is a privilege. The right to contract is a privilege. The right to be a juror is a privilege. The right to be a judge or president of the United States is a privilege. Again, all these are privileges or immunities that states can interfere with, as per the opponents of the amendment as well, not listed in the Bill of Rights, and then later on, we had another commentator uh, who was describing how he felt the public was relating to this language. Uh, um, it appears to be assumed in the popular mind and too often by the lawmakers that these are words of the most general and comprehensive nature and that they embrace the whole catalog of human rights and that they confer the power and obligation to enact um, you know, most dangerous laws. Now, these speeches that were given... Uh, in the floor of the House and in the floor of the Senate were transcribed and they were published. They appeared on the front pages of major newspapers, including in this town. They were placed into pamphlets and handed out sometimes as, as political material. And so the public got this, this language and they engaged it and they reflected it back. Here's a letter uh, to the editor in the New York Times written by Madison, not the one who you know, earlier helped found the Federal Society, right? Uh, but a different Madison, it's a pseudonym. Um, and he is, he is reciting back the Corfield formulation as to, uh, on the debate in the 14th Amendment. What the rights and privileges of a citizen in the United States are, are summed up in another case. And he goes on and, and talks about Corfield and gives some of these uh, uh, examples as rights of, of citizens. And so what we have here is the following I submit to you. Uh, we need to focus on what the public understood it was doing when, the stuff, when this language was ratified. The terms privileges and immunities meant rights generally. They included sort of the natural rights that people would suppose would be um, uh, guaranteed to people by any free government. While there might have been a comedy provision securing those rights, the abolitionist legal tradition that culminated in the 14th Amendment saw this more as a positive grant. And in any event, Dred Scott, Madison, the speeches on the floor of the House and Senate all pretty much pointed in this one direction. It includes the enumerated rights of the Constitution, and yes, there were people who believed that Article 4, Section 2 also was a grant of enumerated rights. In any event, they believed that the words themselves 
encompassed this understanding of privileges and immunities, and that's what was ratified into the Constitution. Uh, does that mean that we have every possible right imaginable uh, uh, snuck in uh, through the P or I clause? No, it does not. Uh, I agree with Justice uh, Washington uh, that we have to look sort of to the classical liberal tradition to see what are these natural human rights that any free government would guarantee its people um, as, as the source of, of, uh, of what the unenumerated privileges might be. So it does not guarantee you, you know, the right to get the cartoon channel or uh, the right to public uh, infrastructure spending, as a U.S. senator said the other day, was a human right. Um, no, uh, but it does guarantee you, at the very least, the right to make and enforce contracts, pursue your livelihood, make use of your property, participate in civil society, including by accessing the courts, and all the rest, all those things of which people were deprived during the Reconstruction era, all those things of which the 39th Congress was most concerned about guaranteeing at the constitutional level. Thanks. We want to open this up, obviously. Take all the time you want, and then we'll open it up. Um, let's see. Maybe I'll take four or five. Just our story so far. Okay. Because this can be confusing unless, unless you've done studying in this or you've written on this yourself. Our arguments fall into three main categories. Um, Pre-Reconstruction, what do we know from the antebellum period? What goes on during Reconstruction? And what happens after the ratification of the 14th Amendment? Slaughterhouses over here, okay. We over here pre, we have things like we have the original um, Bill of Rights, so those privileges and immunities. We also have Article 4 and the Comedy Clause and a decision interpreting it called Corfield um, against, uh, against Coriel. During, now we're going to get discussions, uh, say, during the, um, the 39th Congress. They're going to debate things um, like the Civil Rights Act of 1866, <coughs> debates which occurred during the same session that they also debated the 14th Amendment. And the 14th Amendment has something called the Privileges or Immunities Clause. Um, the Due Process Clause, and the equal, the equal Protection Clause. So this is kind of all this stuff that we're throwing at you. Notice that Al and I really do have substantial overlap in terms of what we think is important. Both of us are talking about things like um, uh, the Comedy Clause and Corfield against uh, Coriel. What's the, what's the importance of that particular case? Both of us are talking about debates which occurred during the 39th Congress. What do we know about the people and what they were intending to do? But both Alan and I also want to go beyond legislative intent, and we want to talk about how was it uh, picked up by the public, right? So, for example, how do we explain Slaughterhouse and, and the opinions that uh, come just a few years, five or so years, after the ratification of the, of the 14th Amendment? So I just wanted to put that on the board just, just to kind of help enable our conversation once we open this up and you guys are asking, asking questions. I just have a couple of, um, a couple of quick thoughts. Um, again, I believe that all these enumerated rights become part of the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States. I believe that what is incorporated into the Privileges or Immunities Clause is Article 4 as it was understood during the antebellum period. As, I under, as, as an equal protection clause, I'm making a claim that that's how it was understood during the antebellum period. And I produce it again in my book. I talk a lot about the evidence that it was understood as an equal treatment claim. Um, but as I understand Alan's argument and, and, um, and others, the argument here would be economic rights that were once only given a degree of equal treatment protection um, receive absolute protection, an absolute unenumerated right to liberty of contract and liberty of economic rights that you would get. Uh, the Privileges or Immunities Clause. So part of our argument has to do with whether or not the Comedy Clause was transformed. And the rights of, uh, of the Comedy Clause were transformed from equal treatment rights into absolute rights. And so my claim would be there's no evidence of the transformation. Alan and I would argue about that in terms of what we, um, what we think the historical record um, applies. He also brings up the Civil Rights Act of 1866, points out that if you look at it, 
It also talks about what appear to be very important economic rights. It provides um, uh, the freedmen the same rights as white people when it comes to contracting, when it comes to, to property, to real estate, and to testify, suit, you know, things that seem to be important to flourishing in terms of um, the, economic, uh, the economic process. This is why a number of uh, libertarian scholars would look to the Civil Rights Act as protecting economic rights, and the Civil Rights Act um, must be understood as um, becoming constitutionalized by the adoption of the Privileges or Immunities Clause. Um, I argue against that. I agree with John Bingham, the man who drafted the 14th Amendment. Bingham refused to support the Civil Rights Act of 1866 because he understood it as an attempt to enforce the rights of due process. The rights of due process, no one should be deprived of life, liberty, or property without equal protection of their due process, uh, due process rights. And because freedmen were being considered outlaws, they weren't receiving any kind of protection, they were not secure. Um, they didn't, weren't able to go to courts of law when, um, when property was stolen or when a contract was breached. Uh, they couldn't testify. They had no mechanism by which their life, liberty, or property could receive due process of law. Um, so he had thought that they should receive due process of law, but he, because they debated the Civil Rights Act before the ratification of the 14th Amendment, he didn't believe they had power to pass the Civil Rights Act. So he refused to support it. He proposed an amendment that would constitutionalize the due process clause, and then in Section 5, give Congress power to enforce the rights of due process. And then, as a, lot of, as a lot of you know, a few years after the ratification of the 14th Amendment, they repass the Civil Rights Act and extended most of its provisions to protect all persons. So the Civil Rights Act was an attempt to protect the rights of due process. It doesn't feed into the privileges or immunities clause at all. Yes, it does involve economic rights, but those rights receive nothing more than equal protection and due process, because that's what was being denied to the freedmen in the South, and they didn't want to do anything more. And I can quote, I can quote to you um, radical Republicans in the 39th Congress saying, we shouldn't do anything more, I will not support, this would be Shellebarger, Samuel Shellebarger, we would not support anything that would give the federal government control over the actual substance of tort, contract, and property. Those are subjects which belong in the states. We simply want to impose the natural right of due process and, and equal protection. Um, so, Civil Rights Act would feed into the Due Process Clause, privileges or immunities, um, uh, continues to be uh, simply a protection of enumerated rights. Well, what about Slaughterhouse and what about Miller? Um, Allen makes the claim that everybody in Slaughterhouse uh, thought that it protected some degree of unenumerated rights. Um, poor Miller, poor Justice Miller, one of the hatest of the hated uh, opinions of all time. Again, Dred Scott. And then Slaughterhouse, I think that's it. Maybe Citizens United, I don't know, I don't know. Um, Roe v. Wade, I know, it's, it's, all, it's all over the place. Next time you discuss Slaughterhouse um, in your classes, or if you have a chance to, to read it, go back to Miller's list of things that he believes are the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States. You'll find they fall into two categories. Categories of enumerated rights, he lists rights listed in the First Amendment. He quotes them. Rights enumerated in the Constitution, like the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment, he specifically lists those rights. And then he, he lodges into this odd stuff like the right to travel on the waterways um, of the United States and the, and the right to be protected on the high seas by the federal government, right? He would be protected by Virginia on the high seas. Um, read the list, look at the case that is cited at the end of that list, you'll find that he's quoting himself from an earlier case. The quote in the, and the earlier case had to do with the degree to which states could interfere with the operations of the federal government. Um, these are not unenumerated rights. This list has to do with the powers of the federal government uh, with which states cannot interfere. And in that earlier case, what does he end that discussion with? McCulloch against Maryland, a case that had to do with things the federal government can do that states cannot interfere. So it's not a list of unenumerated rights. It's a list that comes from his own opinion in an earlier case saying here are things that states cannot interfere with. Enumerated rights and those things 
which are enumerated into the hands of the federal government by way of the power provisions. Okay, that's enough for a, for a response. Let's get at it. Let's get to our conversation. You can rebut the rebut. If you, if you, would, you know, I'm tempted to. Uh, I'll spend maybe 30 seconds on it and a little more than I can time it. Number one, if, if all the PRI clause does is transmit the comedy clause uh, again against the state, then it doesn't really do anything. Because the comedy clause is still there. It hasn't been repealed. Right? And it's still being enforced today. So you have the comedy clause, and then you have all this debate, all this anguish, a civil war, you know, a million, you know, hundred thousands dead, to just redo the same thing all over again. It doesn't make much sense to me, but I'm sure you, you can rebut my rebuttal. <laughs> uh, and then, uh, well, you know, people understand Miller's opinion is, uh, in Slaughterhouse is telling you what it means that no state shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States. So uh, even if his sources come from sort of the, the federal structure of the government that states have, <coughs> interfere with things that the federal government uh, has the power to do. Nonetheless, we're talking here about a provision that supposedly uh, addresses the privileges or meetings of citizens of the United States, and you know, I've, you know, I'm not the person who invented the notion that um, these are unintermitted rights, as it were, uh, even if they have a bizarre or sort of uncertain uh, lineage. So, but I didn't want to go beyond 30 seconds, so let's open that. I, I want to hear. Sip, stand yourself, call. Uh, yes. So I have, a, I have a question that's um, methodological um, for, for both of you. You both criticized legislative history. You both have drawn a lot of evidence from legislative history. Um, and I, I certainly take uh, the point that, leg, that the way legislators talk is also evidence of public meaning. But I'm wondering um, if we're really looking uh, in the right places to get a sense of public meaning. So if we accept kind of an original public meaning uh, account, yes. don't we want to get out of the Congress and see if the um, legislators have any reasons to obfuscate what they're doing? Um, and also, maybe maybe the interpretations in the courts are less important than maybe what are, how are Friedman taking this on the ground in the South or something of that nature? Have that kind of evidence, and if so, where does that take us? Great, great question. I, and you know, we'll both—I'm sure we both will want to want to respond to this. Um, a couple of things. One, there's just this really great book available on Amazon.com uh, by Professor Kurt Lash. <laughs> Lash privileges or, uh, and immunities. Um, I do subscribe to the methodology of original meaning, originalism. I do so because I believe in normative theory of popular sovereignty and the right to the people to come together and entrench fundamental norms. I think that, uh, that proposition necessarily ties you to what the people try to communicate. Communication is contextual. You have to understand the context in which the communication occurred. That places you into some type of historical analysis. It can include, it should include, the words of people who use the language, who understand the legal terms, and who bring those terms before the public. They're trying to communicate to the public so you can presume that they want to be understood when they talk to the public. So the debates in the legislature are, are important. But one of the great moves in originalist theory over the past decade or so has been to go beyond it, not reject the relevance of these debates, but to move beyond it. Because what your, your target is um, uh, the consensus understanding of these words within the community that ultimately is going to decide whether or not to ratify and make them part of the Constitution. That's why the central chapter of my book on privileges or immunities clause is not the legislative debates. It has to do with the public debates of the privileges or immunities clause that occurred after it was sent to the public for ratification. Um, and the central, and just to, um, just to very quickly talk about that, um, the argument I make in the book is that there wasn't much discussion at all about the privileges or immunities clause in the state ratifying conventions. That's why most scholars say that there's a silence regarding uh, the public understanding of the privileges or immunities clause. I say they've been looking in the wrong place. The discussions occurred during the political debates of 1866 as they headed to a very important election that fall. Um, both Democrats and Republicans um, took opposite positions about whether or not the 14th Amendment should be ratified. Republicans started out slow, didn't really want to talk too much about the meaning of privileges or immunities. Um, but then an explosive event occurred in Louisiana 
there was an assault on a meeting of freedmen um, in New Orleans. Uh, the, the freedmen were meeting there to, um, uh, to propose a redrafting of the Louisiana Constitution to give more rights to the freedmen. A state-led mob attacked the assembly and shot them dead even as they were trying to surrender. It became a national scandal and Republicans were able to point to that scandal as why we should ratify the 14th Amendment because now finally um, citizens will get their rights to freedom of speech and freedom of assembly. And they pointed to the enumerated provisions of the Constitution which would now be applied against state action. So enough, I've already spoken uh, way too much, but I completely agree with you. You need to talk about the public debate. The argument in the book is that that event crystallized and focused the public debate in a way that um, really brought the meaning before the people. Republicans prevail in that election of 1866. And we so anyway, that's a lot of stuff. But I think it's a great, a great question. Yeah, well, actually, too, th I think this is a, it's a great question also. Um, I think we're very lucky when we litigate the 14th Amendment relative to the Bill of Rights Amendments because there, there's a lot more media from the 1860s than there were in the 1780s and 90s. And so we have more sources to look at. And, uh, the last book wasn't out when Lydia McDonald, but we so we couldn't order it, uh, even further. <laughs> uh, we would we would have read it if it was out. Uh, but I'll tell you what was out and what people did look at. We did survey newspapers. Uh, we did survey some of the debates that were occurring in the uh, in the uh, in legislatures. Um, uh, there was an article that uh, a gentleman, uh, attorney David Hardy, uh, published where he surveyed the uh, the media. He found that New York Times. Letter to the editor from Madison, who basically regurgitated the, the Jacob Howard speech, which shows an engagement and adoption of that uh, that uh, language in the floor of the Senate. Um, uh, for you know, uh, for better or worse, those speeches were disseminated widely. They were published. They were consumed by by people. And I do think it does matter to some extent the fact that we did have the Supreme Court opine on the meaning of privileges and immunities in a case that really inflamed the country. Uh, I'm not sure how many people in 1857 went on Westlaw and downloaded uh, you know, the Dred Scott opinion, but it's, it's, the people did read it. The people engaged with it, and people sort of knew what was, was going on. It's true. Um, I think back then, uh, in the 1850s and 1860s, people did more reading and less tweeting. Uh, there was more uh, engagement with some of these original sources that, that were produced by the courts and by the Congress. So, I, um, but I'll tell you, our briefing with Donald certainly cited some examples. Madison, they were also, here's one comment I just dug up. This is my Donald brief. I just looked it up. There was a Texas uh, House committee that um, obviously didn't really like the 14th Amendment and said that, uh, that the amendment would defeat the reserved rights of the states declared by the framers of the Constitution to belong to the states exclusively and necessary for the protection of the property and liberty of the people. That's pretty broad. I mean, they understood that. The first section of this proposed amendment is to strike down those state rights and invest all power in the general government. Well, I'm not so sure if it's a complete abrogation of state sovereignty. But look, the 14th Amendment does limit federalism. It limits federalism in a certain way. It limits it at least, per Professor Lash, in forcing the states to abide by the Bill of Rights, which was not the case before 1868. I think it goes a little bit further than that and also includes uh, the classical rights of the poor field So sort of actually building off that, I know, so the Civil Rights Act of 1866 was passed and Johnson didn't want to have anything to do with it, it passed over his veto, and then you basically have Congress, I always understood it as almost Congress doing an end run around the President to pass the 14th Amendment to try to really uh, get what they wanted out of sort of the rights that they were trying to get. And I was wondering whether that sort of tension between the legislative branch and the executive branch plays at all or detracts from this idea of this incorporation of rights as much as is trying to take back power to the legislature or to take back power away from a recalcitrant president in the run-up to uh, the 1868 presidential election, or maybe not so much. Well, I'll, I'll say a couple of things. I'm not... And I don't think I can fully, I don't think yeah. I can fully answer your, your, your question. I'm, so I'm going to pull it into something that I do want to talk about, because that's okay. what we do, right? Um, the, the tension, the, the quick thing I want to say is the tension between um, Andrew Johnson and Congress 
was extremely important to establishing um, uh, an idea in the public's mind about what the amendment was about. But I don't think the argument was about um, power in the executive branch versus power in uh, the legislative branch. Instead, I think what was, what was happening is that Andrew Johnson supported ratification of the 13th Amendment, and then he wanted that to be the end of it. He then wanted to pardon as many Southern officials as possible, bring the states back to their seats in the Senate and the House, um, and let's just heal, heal the country. Republicans were saying, wait a minute. Um, things are happening in the South. We thought it would be enough to, uh, to bring them liberty by abolishing slavery. We're getting reports that actually they're, they're imposing a different form of slavery uh, by way of their denial of basic natural, basic natural rights. Um, so they want to say, we're not going to readmit uh, the Southern states until more protections come along. One protection is the Civil Rights Act. Um, Johnson doesn't want to have anything to do with that. Um, he vetoes it, but they override the veto. Um, but a separate track involved the amendment. Uh, Bingham proposed the amendment. Bingham didn't have anything to do with the Civil Rights Act. He opposed it. He had a separate, a separate way of protecting liberty, um, and that's proposing an amendment which will entrench this radical restructuring of federalism. Johnson's opposed to that, too. Johnson sends the proposed 14th Amendment to the states, but says, don't rat ratify this. Um, it's wrong to propose any amendment before the southern states are back and can participate in the discussion. Now we enter into the summer. Johnson's not up for re-election, but he's the head Democrat. So he now rides the circuit supporting Democrat candidates throughout the country, leading them to say we need to heal the country, reject the amendment, and let's bring these hostilities to an end. Um, the Republicans say, not yet. The rebels are still rebels. Freedom has not been established in the South. We need this amendment, and we need things like the, like the, Civil, like the Civil Rights Act. Um, the debate, because he opposed the 14th Amendment, that drove a deepened political and public discussion about what the amendment was and why it was necessary. So it was his opposition that broadened the discussion. And I think Alan is exactly right. The newspaper penetration at the time was remarkable. You can find evidence now of, you know, you have the major papers like the New York Herald and things along those lines that are published along the East Coast, but they get reprinted for simply content's sake, all the way into Kentucky, all the way into the western, the western side of the United States as it was at, at that time. So the debates, Alan is exactly right, the debates in Congress were published in newspapers and were sent to the public. Howard's speech, which is so important to Alan's argument, I just have to support his point. Howard's speech was so important that the 14th Amendment became known as the Howard Amendment. Um, so people associated his speech with the meaning of that amendment, and that's why it's so important, well, what exactly did his, did his speech mean? So I think there, there was a debate, um, two different visions of what Reconstruction was. I don't think it was a fight over executive versus um, uh, uh, legislative power. I think it was a fight against Johnson's vision of Reconstruction and the Republican vision of, of Reconstruction. But that's only a partial, that's only a partial. Yeah, uh, to be sure, I mean, I, I agree with Professor Lash. I don't see the executive's role as being itself a part of the debate. Obviously, Johnson was more sympathetic to the Southern cause uh, during, this, uh, during this time, at least. So uh, he was not in favor of, of imposing too many restrictions on the South. But the amendment was necessary to constitutionalize the Civil Rights Act of 1866 because uh, the, um, the courts were not enforcing the Civil Rights Act. Uh, Bingham himself, I agree with Professor Lash, obviously, uh, expressed a great deal of reservation as to whether there was constitutional authority uh, to enact this, this provision. And judges, especially judges in the South, were all too happy to oblige. And there was one case we cited um, that was uh, kind of interesting. Uh, this was a, uh, there was a report in the, uh, uh, in the New York Times, of all places, where uh, a judge in Mississippi uh, did not recognize uh, the citizenship clauses didn't recognize African-Americans and citizens, didn't enforce the Civil Rights Act of 1866 in a case where a black Union soldier was convicted of the offense of having arms, which was uh, not allowed in Mississippi at the time. Uh, and he basically said that the Civil Rights Act had uh, no constitutional backing to it. So uh, I, I think it's hard to dispute, though some people do, that uh, the 14th Amendment was intended to constitutionalize the Civil Rights Act. <coughs> 
And that includes, I think, the right to make and enforce contracts and all the other very basic civic society rights that were being flagrantly violated among the South. And just one quick thing, just to, sure. just to follow up on that, because it also allows me to quickly answer another one of Alan's questions. Sure. So you, I'm arguing the comedy clause in the Constitution became part of the Constitution um, by way of the Privileges or Immunities Clause. That makes no sense. That makes no sense at all. Well, the problem was the comedy clause in Article 4 had no enforcement power along with it. 13th Amendment, no more slavery, power to enforce. 14th Amendment, liberties, power to enforce. 15th Amendment, black males get the right to vote, power to enforce, right? The argument, what had happened during the antebellum period is that the comedy clause was supposed to require the states to provide equal treatment, but there was no power of Congress to pass legislation to force them to do so. This was a major subject of the debates. And so one of the things they wanted to do was make sure that Congress had power to enforce all enumerated rights. That would include not only the Bill of Rights, but also the Comedy Clause. They didn't have that power before. Well, I'm going to disagree a little bit with that. I mean, basically, we, I, I, well, Taylor, we've got Joiner. No, okay, all right. <laughs> I, uh, not, we've had some Joiner for a while. But, uh, well, if that were the case, then Justice Washington would have written a very different opinion in Corfield versus Coryell. He would have simply said, a federal court lacks jurisdiction to, uh, to uh, direct uh, any sort of judgment as against the operation of the law in that case, because there's no power. Uh, uh, the court possesses, or the federal government uh, might uh, somehow step in. I mean, how how would the, the comedy clause have any effect at all if it needed a separate enforcement tool that only the Fourteenth Amendment could uh, could provide? I think the comedy clause was uh, very much in the offing back uh, prior to the Fourteenth Amendment. And, uh, uh, the idea that it, it needed its own amendment just to make it enforceable, not sure. But in any event, the record is very clear that. Uh, people felt the states were violating certain rights. Those rights were spelled out in Corfield versus Coriel as examples of Plutus immunities, and the public went ahead and decided, let's make sure that no state shall make or enforce laws abridging these rights. Not abridging the equal protection of the rights, because the equal protection clause comes separate. Uh, and certainly, um, uh, you know, nobody would argue that uh, the 14th Amendment doesn't transmit some level of equal protection, but I don't think that the equal protection clause is meant to be redundant. The comedy clause, I don't think that the privilege clause is meant to be redundant of either. It's but not redundant. Because if you look at Article 4, privileges and immunities, who gets privileges and immunities under Article 4? Citizens in the several states. But equal protection is a natural right, Republicans told us. It should not just be limited to citizens. It should go to all persons. And so we get an equal protection clause that for the first time extends the rights of equal treatment and equal protection to all persons. So your person, your citizen, your rights are being violated in Article 4, Section 2 because the state won't uh, let you uh, uh, do something. Uh, what's your recourse? Fifteen seconds. <laughs> it's, it's 1820 and... Uh, 1820, you can, right. You can, you can, what do you do? You can go to the court, uh, courts of law. Courts of law under Article 3 can have federal question jurisdiction. Uh, what's, what's, the, what's the jurisdictional statute there? Uh, the jurisdictional statute for them to hear federal questions would be in the First Judiciary Act. Okay. Um, but Congress would not have power to pass, for example, a 1983 statute that would give lawyers but, attorney's fees or to create well, situations uh, where right. Uh, right. certain federal personnel would be allowed to go into the South to make sure that these rights are protected. Oh. All of that required civil rights acts after the adoption of the 14th Amendment. Yeah. I think that this was litigated in the 1840s. But See, we're just going to keep going. We're just going to keep going. This audio file is a production of the University of Chicago Law School. Visit us on the web at www.law.uchicago.edu.